Well, here we go. I hope you got to know someone around you a little bit better, learn their favorite summertime snack. And we're going to be back today with our teaching series called Bless. So we've been working through this series this summer as a way to know that, hey, we, we are blessed by God and we want to be a blessing in our community. And so looking at some practical ways at which we can do that. So, so far, uh, we have covered the B, begin with prayer. Last week, we took a, a moment to say, listen to others. And this morning, just a little teaser, we're going to talk about eat. And so with that, let me read our teaching passage today from o Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage of wine. On this mountain, he will swallow up the, buried, the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord of God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. Would you welcome Madison Nagy this morning as she's about to share in our teaching. Can you hear me? Yeah. This is really cool. I've never worn one of these before, and I feel like Hillary Duff or something in a music video. So, really fun. Uh, <laughs> Everybody knows who <laughs> Hillary Duff is very much my generation. She's like the Britney Spears, but maybe less problematic. I don't know. Good morning, though. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. I am one of the pastors at Kainos Church in Portland. Um, we are a part of the same church planning organization as Generations, and so I view Generations as kind of like the cool older cousin that we can learn a lot from and we get to catch up with um, every once in a while, so it's really wonderful to be here this morning with you all. Um, and as Kyle said, you all are in a series called Bless, and each week you're focused on a different aspect of kind of the missionary lifestyle of looking outside of yourself into the world and loving them. And I was really quick to snag this topic, which is eat with people, and I can't wait to dive in. But fair warning, if you didn't eat breakfast this morning, this might be a little brutal. <laughs> I won't be offended at all if there's like granola bars being <laughs> unwrapped already happening, great. Um, or there's like donut holes in the back, you can go get one if you need, totally okay. Um, yeah, one of my favorite things on the internet right now is this YouTube show called Hot Ones. Has anyone seen it? Yes? Okay. Great. Um, in case you don't know, it's a YouTube channel where um, it's been around for about five years and it involves a host, his name is Sean, and he interviews celebrities. But it differs from a typical celebrity talk show like Jimmy Kimmel or The Tonight Show <laughs> because um, they actually are conducting this interview over a meal of hot wings. And progressively, as the interview goes on, the wings get hotter and hotter and the questions get hotter and hotter too. That's kind of the whole premise. Um, so the show starts with them biting into wings that are pretty manageable, about as mild as sriracha, which personally, that's not manageable at all for me. I'm, I'm out right there. Um, but it ends with them eating hot wings that are, that are a 2 million on the Scoville rating scale. So the Scoville scale is used to measure hot peppers and like other substances like chemicals and stuff. Um, 
like, it gets, it gets a little crazy, but two million is only achieved by one pepper on the planet, the Carolina Reaper. And it pains me to even think about putting that anywhere near my mouth, let alone eating a whole hot wing. Um, recently, Jennifer Lawrence was on the show, and you might not know her either, but I really love her. She's a famous actress right now, and I was really interested to see how she handled this experience. <laughs> Disclaimer, she didn't handle it well. Um, yeah, it was bad. So it starts, and Sean, the host, is asking her some questions, and it's pretty light at first. Um, she almost keeps her distance and like throws some questions back at him to kind of keep the focus off of herself. Um, but as the wings get hotter, you see very clearly her guards start to come down, physically and mentally. Um, she becomes less calculated and more loose with her answers. And during one of the hottest wings, this is what happens. She literally bursts into tears at one point, and she's unable to control her body and her response uh, because of this experience that these hot wings have given her. Um, it's really brutal. I recommend watching it. It's hilarious. Um, but it's interesting to see her become more vulnerable as the meal goes on. And this is a hyperbolic example of the power that meals have. I've been fortunate enough to never have burst into tears mid-dinner party. But um, I have experienced the strange and wonderful thing that can happen as we sit down to eat with people. In most cases, I've seen that our hearts and our minds follow what our bodies do. That as we sit down and we relax and we eat good food, our conversations can be less guarded, more confiding, and rich. So as we start this morning, I invite you to reflect on a time when a meal provided that space for you. Maybe it was like a celebration, maybe a Christmas dinner or a meal at a wedding where celebration was on the forefront and you were surrounded by good company. Or maybe it was during a hard time in your life where someone took you out to dinner or brought you food, and that food and that company um, brought you comfort and understanding. For me, what comes to mind is just an ordinary weeknight where some new neighbors of ours at the time invited us to dinner, and they were an interracial couple. Um, he was American and she was Persian, and she cooked us a multi-course Iranian meal with new spices that I'd never heard before and names I couldn't pronounce of food. Um, and as she shared and we ate together, we learned about each other's upbringings and cultures and hopes for the future. And it was such a good example of a way that a meal can be a special way to connect with people. And it certainly seems like Jesus knew this too. We're focusing on eating with people because Jesus focused on eating with people. We'll mostly be looking at the Gospel of Luke this morning, and in Luke's Gospel, there are 10 different scenes where Jesus is sitting down eating. He gave many of his teachings around meals and gave us some of the richest revelations about himself as he sat around a table. Most likely, he was seated, uh, seated on the floor um, dining with others. It seems that Jesus prioritized eating so much that people made fun of him for it. Recorded in Luke chapter 7, while Jesus was addressing a crowd of critics, he says this. Um, Luke 7, verse 34 says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So in other words, Jesus was so known for enjoying meals that people ridiculed him for it. They said, Look, a guy that is always at parties and sits at tables with questionable people, who, why should we take him seriously? And Jesus answers that question 
very next verse in a clever and poetic way. He says, yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Or put by the message translation, opinion polls don't count for much, do they? The proof of the pudding is in the eating. So today, I want us to consider the proof that was in the pudding of Jesus' ministry, a life that was marked by meals and resulted in the coming of a beautiful, inclusive kingdom of God. Is there something to this eating and drinking that we should pay attention to? So let's start by looking at perhaps Jesus' most famous meal, um, something we call now the Last Supper. This was a Passover meal, which was a religious tradition of remembrance and something that Jewish people did every year. Jesus would have had participated in many Passover meals over his lifetime and at least have had a few of these with his disciples after his three-year-long ministry. But this one would be his last and he, he, because he would be crucified the very next day. And it's here at this meal that Jesus brings particular meaning to all of their eating. We'll be in Luke uh, chapter 22, starting in verse 14. Again, it'll be on the screen if you want to follow along. It says, When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So in this moment, Jesus is surrounded by his closest community, his disciples and followers that he had been walking with for the last three years. And he tells them that the purpose of his life was to bring the kingdom of God. And doing so would require him to sacrifice himself, his life ending so that ours could continue as guests in the kingdom. He brings new meaning to an old meal, gives fresh purpose to an ancient tradition. He says, it's never been about the food. It's about the kingdom and the veiled reality of God on the throne and us, that we get to be in relationship with him, not only as this God's subjects, but as his friends. And now, this Jesus speaking again, my paraphrasing, and now as we sit here eating as we have before, I'm giving you this physical moment, like this tangible reminder of how much I love you that now as you eat together, and in the future as you eat together, this is a way you can remember me. Jesus is asking his disciples to continue the practice of eating together and remembering him, to continue his legacy of eating, and that somehow, some way, this is this tool for spiritual growth. I love that eating is a spiritual discipline. That's what I'm taking this as. <laughs> But I don't think Jesus' emphasis was on the food itself. He didn't break out some new menu item or like take an aged wine he had been aging for this special occasion. He used the meal they were already eating, just typical bread and wine that was part of the Passover supper. And he used it as a connection point to his larger story. And notice Jesus starts by saying, take this and share it among yourselves. There's a community involvement here that I don't think we can miss. There's a passing of the bread basket and the wine bottle. These 12 disciples of Jesus were all Jewish young men, but that's about where their similarities end. 
they had vastly different skill sets and trades, vastly different ideas about who Jesus was and what he should be doing, uh, vastly different personalities, as we'll see in many stories throughout the Gospels of these 12 men interacting together. In fact, right after this moment where Jesus gives them this command to eat with each other and remember, right after Jesus says this incredibly profound thing that we would go on and like create a, a founding practice of the Christian faith with, these disciples get into a fight with each other. Luke's gospel records it and says in verse 24, immediately after, then a dispute arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. That's really embarrassing for them that right after Jesus gives them this revelation about their commonality in the kingdom and asks them to take, share, and remember, they start an argument about who's the best. That did not age well for them. At the time, I'm not sure they grasped what Jesus was doing and what he wanted of them. But thankfully, I think the early church did catch on. We see that they would continue this practice, this discipline of eating together and remembering. In the sequel to Luke, the book of Acts, we're given a glimpse into the life of the first church gatherings. Um, it'll be Acts 2:42 that we look at next. It says, the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals and their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. All the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute their proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day, they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. The Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. I think it's no mistake how often eating is mentioned in the short paragraph that describes the early church. They devoted themselves to sharing meals. They ate in their homes. They shared food and shared gladness and shared simplicity. This practice that Jesus introduced that we now call communion and have simplified in a lot of ways that I think makes sense for the modern way we gather. For them, it was a common meal in which they ate and they remembered their reason for living and loving. And I think it's important to understand how this was revolutionary for the early church to be doing community meals in this way. Let me paint a picture. Uh, first, in the early Christian movement, there were Jewish people, and Jewish people then and now stuck to a strict kosher diet which restricted them from eating pretty common food like pork and shellfish. And not only could they not eat it, but some of the most pious Jewish people wouldn't even eat a dish that was prepared in a pot or a pan that was previously used for a non-kosher dish. So this strict diet meant that Jewish people rarely ate with non-Jewish people. It's likely that a Hebrew would go their entire life without ever sharing a meal with a Greek person. It required too much trust of someone and too much awkwardness, and just they avoided it. Um, but also, a part of the early church were Gentiles. And Gentiles is really just a catch-all word for anyone that is not Jewish. Um, and that would have, at the time, involved Romans, Egyptians, Ethiopians, a growing number of people all across the ancient world. And they would all have had their own set of dietary preferences, certainly not concerned with keeping kosher diet, and we learn in later letters of the Old Test in the New Testament that some had habits like eating meat that had previously been sacrificed to pagan gods and pagan temples, 
uh, I think maybe an equivalent is like going to grocery outlet, getting a piece of meat that maybe expired yesterday, but it's really cheap, so you're going to do it anyways. <laughs> Jewish people did not like that. So heading back to Acts 2, uh, here you have this snapshot of the early church, which includes Jews and non-Jews alike, eating meals together. And never before had this been done. It's this that makes the picture of community so astonishing and counter-normative for their time. For the first time, people were breaking cultural and religious traditions and claiming Christ as their unifier. It was Christ that was enough to allow them to lay aside their differences and become one new community. And I think this is one of the things that Jesus was getting at as he demonstrated a life of eating with others. That as we eat with one another, fellow believers, we embody the kingdom of God, where we lay aside our differences and pick up unity, claiming nourishment of community as part of our spiritual growth. This has been really formative for my church, us, as a new church plant. Uh, Kainos Church is actually um, a house church network where primarily we meet in small groups in homes on Sunday mornings. And once a month, we meet more like this as a bigger group. And when we're meeting in those separate homes, we eat meals together. The group that meets in my house meets at 10 a.m. on Sundays, and so we have brunch every week, and we usually keep it really simple. We have a few baked goods. We have, like, an egg dish of some sort and coffee, of course. Um, we eat on paper plates, and we usually eat on our couch around our coffee table because our dining table isn't big enough. It's super simple, not that interesting. It's just a group of people coming together to have Sunday brunch. But when you peel back the layers, it's actually really beautiful. We have single people and families, Republicans and Democrats, bread eaters and people that are gluten-free, which bless them, they're much stronger than I am. <laughs> We're all coming together as a very hodgepodge group to eat food. We're not your typical cool Portland brunch crowd. We've noticed that over the weeks as we share food, spill on floor, dodge dogs and children. I'm sure you guys know a lot about that, dodging children. It's beautiful here. We're formed together. Amen. Our differences are less, less prevalent, and our unity is more exposed over egg casseroles and cinnamon rolls. And this serves us well, because once we're done eating, we head into a time of discussing the Bible together. And I've noticed we're more likely to share our honest thoughts and feelings about God and the Bible after we've spent some time connecting with one another over a meal. And I think that Jesus knew this about the humans he created. But Jesus' followers, his believing community, weren't the only people Jesus ate with. We have many meal scenes in scripture where Jesus is sharing the table with those outside the Jewish in crowd. Among those mentioned are tax collectors, which would have been Jewish people that betrayed their Jewish friends by going to work for Rome. Um, prostitutes, women who engaged in sexual sin forbidden by Jewish law, people with diseases or disabilities who would have been considered to be cursed because of some past sin that they had, and then it generally just mentions sinners, people that for some reason were deemed unworthy and unaccepted by Jewish practice. We mentioned before that meals were significant in the ancient world, um, and rarely they didn't share meals with people beyond their cultural bubble. But the reason for this wasn't just dietary, but also for complex social reasons. Meals were a meaningful moment of intimacy and honor. Uh, New Testament scholar Scott Barchi says it this way, for those in the Mediterranean basin in the first century, 
being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. So eating with one another came with a strict social contract that you did not mess with. You ate with those you trusted, those that you liked, or those that you were like. You certainly didn't share meals with um, people that would embarrass you with their issues or their problems. And you often hosted meals for people who could return the favor later on. It's this reason that when Jesus was seen with thieves, betrayers, sexually promiscuous people, the poor, and the downtrodden, it was seen as scandalous. This man, who's claiming to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Kings, was seen at the table with the scum of the neighborhood. Jesus was demonstrating a never-before-seen hospitality and a not-of-this-world humility. He gave his time, his attention, and his ever-precious table space to those who would never otherwise be invited to such a gathering. And he also explicitly taught about this. In Luke 14, while at a dinner party of a prominent Jewish leader, there was a sick man who had found his way through the door to be healed by Jesus. And it was very obvious that this was annoying to some in attendance. So Jesus just called them out and gave a teaching that addressed this. And at one point, it says in verse 12, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers and sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, blind, and you will be blessed because you cannot repay, they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So here Jesus addresses the norm for any person in their culture that's based on honor and power, that normal instinct to hold company that will move them up the ladder, that can repay them in some way, that can give them something in return. And I'm struck with how our modern time isn't much different, how our temptation is still to only share space with people that can benefit us economically, socially, mentally, how my nature is to huddle with my tribe of people that I like and not give much attention to those who might be on the outskirts, those that might take too much time of me, too much money, too much energy, just too much. But this is not what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is one where Jesus invites the unworthy and the unloved, and before they change a thing, before they give a thing, he calls them friends. And in following Jesus' example and inviting those far from God or those on the fringes of society into our lives and into our homes and into our mealtimes, we can show the world what this God is like. So as we eat with those on the outside, we embody the kingdom of God where he invites the outsider in and calls them family. So what does it look like for us to follow this example? The cool thing is God has purposely placed us in different spheres of influence so that we can shape and expand his kingdom. As we each have, and we each have the chance to identify and befriend and include different people that we might come in contact with, people that can benefit from the love of table community. This might be someone on the outside of faith, someone who isn't interested in God or maybe has experienced religious trauma, or just has never, never yet had the ability to know who Jesus is. 
The simple act of eating with these people can break down barriers of religion and be a gentle introduction into a relationship with Jesus. This might be someone on the outside of society, someone who has found themselves in the margins because of poverty or disability or mental illness. Eating with these people can provide comfort and healing and hospitality that they might have never known before. And this might be someone on the outside of friendship, one of the many that finds themselves a victim of loneliness and doesn't have people to turn to in the highs and lows. Eating with these people can be a lifeline in their loneliness. God doesn't ask us to fix the world's problems. He doesn't task us with changing people's minds or habits or issues. Uh, He just asks us to eat with him as he did. So I was originally done here. It felt really nice and tidy to leave you with this picture of Jesus at one table with his followers where he modeled unity and love and um, gave them teaching and discipleship. And then Jesus at a separate table with the outsiders where he modeled inclusion and and more love. But what we actually see, as is normal with Jesus, is something more complicated than that. What we actually see is scene after scene of both of those things happening at the same time. Jesus will be at the house of a Pharisee, a Jewish leader, and then he'll invite an outsider to come join with them. Or Jesus will be on his way to have a meal with his disciples when he spots a tax collector and they all dine together. For Jesus, these tables aren't separate. They're actually blurry. And I think it's important not to miss this because I think this is the aim of the missionary life, that as we eat with our community and we eat with those on the outside, we embody the kingdom of God when these two tables become one when the spiritual and the non-spiritual melt together. I recently observed this in a really cool way. Um, On the 4th of July, my family hosted a barbecue, and it doubled as a housewarming party because we had just moved into this new place. And so we pretty much invited everyone we knew, which is a lot of people from our church, um, but also some new neighbors that we're just getting to know and some people from old apartment complexes that we've lived in and just some other people from the corners of our lives. And let's just say that the potential for weirdness is really high when you combine a whole bunch of people from different pockets of your life into one small house that happens to be 85 degrees because the AC wasn't working that day. Uh, We had Christians there, and we also had people we know are very opposed to religion. We had babies running around and some older folks there. We had people that really love celebrating America and people that really don't love celebrating America in the same house. So as a host, I was a little nervous with all of just these personalities and differences of opinion in the same roof. Um, But something I love about my church family is that they understand this idea of the blurry table. At one point in the middle of a cornhole game, I noticed uh, my friend Rob, who's a spiritual leader in our church, pull our new neighbors aside and strike up a conversation with them. And over burgers and soda, they talked for at least an hour And I was like overhearing a little bit. um, And they approached some really personal and meaningful topics. And I know that my neighbors, who are very against Jesus, caught a glimpse of a loving God as Rob took the time to connect with them. And I know that as they met people throughout the day, at least I hope, that I'm sure they exchanged questions of like, how do you know Madison and Jake? And I hope that as they interacted with people from my church family and they said, oh, we go to church with them, that their guards for Christianity slowly came down as they experienced true like joy and friendship and inclusion from them. Following Jesus to the blurry table isn't easy. 
It requires a willingness to wade through weirdness and uncomfortability as you lead in a culture where, like the ancient Middle East, we would much rather stick to our social boxes and boundaries. It requires hospitality, and not hospitality that keeps people at a distance with the hierarchy of like, I'm the host, you're the guest, but hospitality that invites people into real relationship when you're generous with your own vulnerability. And it requires time, the prioritization of people sitting down to eat food instead of rushing from thing to thing, activity to activity, that is so easy to do in our fast-paced world. Now notice what's not on that list of requirements. Eating with people as Jesus did does not require having a house, having money, having a fancy, fancy dinner plates. Jesus didn't have any of those things. He often grabbed meals with people and invited them along to whatever he ate, whatever he was doing. Um, that would be our equivalent of inviting someone out to dinner somewhere else. Or he ate fish and bread outside. Our equivalent might be packing a picnic and meeting someone at the park. Or he and the disciples would pick food along the road as they headed somewhere. Our equivalent might just be asking someone out for coffee in the middle of a busy day. What's important is having eyes to see who is hungry around you. Hungry for relationships, hungry for connection, and hungry for God. So I invite you to reflect. What would it look like for Vancouver to look at Generations Church and say, those Christians just showed up eating and drinking? What would your life look like if you prioritized eating with people as a means of missionary living? For me, this is a challenge to like, prune the unnecessary activity in my life so that I have space for hospitality. I have some new neighbors that I don't yet know, and I don't want the summer to pass by without knowing them and inviting them over for dinner. Now, I already know and I've heard and seen that a lot of you do this really well. Your reputation precedes you as a church. I'm serious. You guys do this well. So just use this as an encouragement to keep up this holy work. Keep going. Uh, but maybe this is a place where you can grow. Uh, setting a goal of practical practice. Maybe your goal is one meal a month with some people from church, one meal a month with someone from the outside. And watch as you continue to practice that month over month as those meals become one. Kyle even mentioned the party in the park that you guys are hosting next week. That could be a really practical next step for some of you, of just going and being involved in this party that you guys as a church are throwing for your city. That's so wonderful. Because ultimately, prioritizing connection with others over food makes the bigger claim that as Christians, we get to live a life of abundance, where there's more space at the table, more to be shared, and more friendships to be forged. And that reflects the kingdom of God. In Isaiah, the passage that Kyle read, we find a beautiful vision of a feast with God. In that poem, it's Isaiah 25 through 6, 6 through 8, we'll read it again. It says, On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the people a feast of choice meat, a feast of aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the people, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. Perhaps Jesus came eating and drinking to showcase a God who will eat and drink with us in eternity. Verse 8 says God will swallow up death once and for all. This imagery is so beautiful. He invites us to the table, gives himself the course of death, which is Jesus on the cross. And as outsiders, who certainly don't deserve to be at that table, 
and if we are, certainly deserve to eat our own portion of death. He banishes that from our menu and instead gives us a lavish, abundant meal. And in spending time to eat and connect with others, we get to um, invite the kingdom to the kingdom table too. And this all might just be imagery, but I do think there's going to be some really good food in eternity. Um, But in the meantime, we can remember that God has already invited us to his table to be nourished under his gracious hosting. Um, I'd love to pray for you just as we all finish. Would you join me? God, thank you for your son who ate because he's human, but also ate and gave it just such beautiful meaning. Thank you that he used meals as a tool to love people, to love people that were already following him, to love people on the outside. And would you help us to do the same? Even now, God, would you give each person here an individual revelation of what this could look like in their life as they seek to bless the world? Would you bond Generations Church together with parties, meals, and good conversation over coffee? Be with the relationships in this room, God, and bond them together. Would you also bring to mind names and faces of people who are on the outside that each of these people can love through a dinner invitation or just through a special connection over food? Would you be with this church on their mission to create blurry tables and give grace to the beauty of moments where outsiders are brought in? Amen. Don't go anywhere yet. Jake, I'm going to have you come up here real quick. Generations Church, we stand um, just honored to be co-laborers in the work of the kingdom here in the metro alongside Jake and Madison. Every week, Jake and Madison, we actually, we actually pray a prayer that sends us well. Church, this morning, I want to invite you to pray this prayer aloud, not necessarily for each other this morning, but to pray it over them. And so this morning, as we close, I would just like to pray this for you with us as a church community together. So church, uh, if you feel so led, stand, maybe reach your arms out. Let's throw up that prayer, Abby. And I just want to pray this over you guys. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Through this reality, may you live your faith every day, everywhere. May God's family expand and grow. May your motivation be because of Jesus living out his story. May you make his ways be known and then live for generations to come. Amen. You are loved and we are honored. Thank you for being with us. Have a great week, everybody.